Welcome to the Shalhaba Community Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by the following message. It is so good to share with you all this morning. We've already had so many amazing things this morning. Um, so I'm just going to jump into it. Um, we're talking about disciples are searching the word. I've had a love for the Bible since a young age, and it's sort of been my area of study for a while. And so I'm just really excited to share with you guys this morning about how the Bible is so key and so important to our discipleship. So firstly, I'm going to talk about what does Bible reading have to do with discipleship? Secondly, I'm going to talk about 10 sort of tips and facts to help you in your Bible reading, but it probably won't be 10. It'll probably be a bit less now. So some number of tips and facts to help you in your Bible reading. And then number three, how can we grow in our hunger and desire for the Word of God? So firstly, what does it mean to be a disciple? And why does reading the Word of God help us in our discipleship? So I I spoke um, last year on discipleship. And what I talked about is the fact that Jesus's disciples in the Bible, like were referred to as disciples. Um, And so the word sort of discipleship to us, when we think of it, that's what we often think of. We think of the disciples walking around after Jesus. Um, And that Greek word is mathetes, I think. It should be up on the screen behind me, um, which means a learner, a disciple, or a pupil. And so Basically, the idea of Jesus' disciples is that he was like a teacher, and these were like disciples and pupils walking after the teacher, Jesus. And so I'm going to translate that into something that's a little bit more familiar to us, which is the word apprentice. So we talked about this a bit last year, but just a quick recap. So for example, my husband, Dave, is an apprentice. So for four years, he worked alongside a tradesman and he learnt the trade of that tradesman. And it wasn't about just sitting in a room and filling his head with knowledge. He actually worked alongside someone and in a sense was formed in their image until he became also a tradesman and now he trains other apprentices. And that is sort of the picture of what discipleship is. When we're a disciple of Jesus, we are an apprentice of Jesus. We are meant to be formed into the image of Christ, into the image of our tradesman who is Jesus, not just to know things, but to walk and to live and to act the way he does. For example, in John 13, 13 to 17, Jesus said, "'You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, "'because that is what I am.'" And since I, your Lord and teacher, have watched your feet, you ought to watch each other's feet. Watch each other's feet, not watch. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Jesus says, I've given you an example. And that's not the only place he says it. He says, follow my example. Become like me. Be my disciple. Be my apprentice. I was once in a class and the teacher asked the question, How do you describe an indescribable God? And everybody was putting up their hands saying, you can't, it's impossible. And everyone was trying to guess the answer. And he was like, no, that's not right. No, that's not right. And finally, like we're sitting there for minutes trying to figure it out. And the conclusion that we finally came to, which was correct, is that you use words. Words like indescribable. (laughs) Indescribable is a way of describing something that is indescribable. We actually use words to communicate what someone is like and what something is like. So if we want to know what Jesus is like, we read the Bible. 
The whole Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. If we want to be formed into the image of Jesus, then we need to know what he is like. So we read the word of God that reveals to us what Jesus is like. The Holy Spirit also reveals to us what God is like. And I'll be talking about that a bit more at the end. But more often than not, I think the Bible, sorry, the Holy Spirit uses the Bible to reveal to us what Jesus is like. The Holy Spirit is the one who forms the image of Christ in us. But he does that as we partner with him in spiritual disciplines, things like praying, things like worshiping and fasting and having communion and reading the word of God. And so I want to encourage us that, um, yeah, around the, around the idea of reading the Word of God as a disciple, we cannot be formed into the image of someone that we don't know. And, and in the Pentecostal tradition, we can tend to, some people can sort of tend to lean towards, oh, I know God through worship and I know God through hearing Him speak to me and I know God through prayer. I know God through visions or spiritual experiences or listening to prophets or whatever. And that's all so valid and so good and so true, but it's all useless and baseless if it's not based on the Word of God. The Word of God needs to be the primary place that we go to to understand what Jesus is like so we can be formed in His image as His disciples. So I'm going to go through some facts and tips on the Bible, and I'm going to do some that are super basic Um, and then some that are a little bit more complicated. So hopefully, wherever you're at in your Bible reading journey, there'll be something for you. Please don't feel like you need to take away all of this. It might be a lot of information. So just sort of feel like there's one or two of these that I can sort of take and implement into my understanding of the Bible and of the Word of God. So first up, the first thing we need to understand, so sorry, tech guys, you have to follow with me. The first one is number one. I'll just say what number it is. Uh, No, not that one. So number one is understanding Bible translation. So we need to understand that none of the English Bibles that we read are actually the original thing. Yes, there we go. None of the English Bibles that we read are actually the original thing. Every English Bible we read, whether you're reading New King James or ESV or whatever the purest form you can find is, we're still reading a translation. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. There's a tiny portion of the Bible in a different language. Does anybody know what that is and where it is in the Bible? Aramaic in the book of Daniel. So there's a tiny part of the book of Daniel that's Aramaic, but if you're going to learn a biblical language, that's not the one to do. It's like three chapters of Daniel. It's not worth it. So Hebrew and Greek, they're the two main languages that the Old Testament and the New Testament are written in. And I'm sure most of us are aware there's heaps of different translations of the Bible. So we've got, who's the, my NIV people, ESV, NLT, The Message, um, Passion. Oh, New King James. Sorry, I'm so sorry. New King James, Old King James. I don't know, anyone? I don't believe you if you say you're reading the Old King James. Amplified, yeah, so there's all different translations. And the reason there's so many different translations is because they use different sort of methods in translating. So this is my NASB, New American Standard Bible, basically as clunky as it gets as a translation, but also the most literal as it gets. 
unless you're reading like an interlinear Bible where it's literally word for word and none of the sentences make any sense. So if you want the sentences to make somewhat sense, NASB is like the purest form of that. So this is what I read for studying. This is my NLT, and this is what I use sort of for reading and for preaching out of because it's a lot smoother and a lot easier to understand. And there's sort of a whole spectrum of translations between these two. So ones on this end are word-for-word translations where it looks at what does the word say in the Bible and how can we best translate that word into English. Thought-for-thought translations like this, an extreme form of this would be the message, which isn't really a translation, it's more a paraphrase. It says by Eugene Peterson on the cover. It's not pretending to be a translation, but that's the extreme of thought-for-thought. NLT is still a translation, but it's thought-for-thought. So instead of thinking, what do these words literally mean in Greek or Hebrew, What the translators are trying to do is they're trying to say, what's the concept that this person is trying to get across? And how can I say it in a way that would make sense to a modern audience? Because they're not always the same. Sometimes the literal wording of something, even if they did the words exactly literally correct, would not really make a lot of sense to us. And so these guys kind of go a little bit further, helping us understand the point of what that passage was trying to make. So I'll give one um, example. So I'm going to read out of Genesis chapter 1, verse 6. Oh, sorry, verse 9. Oh, wait, no, sorry, verse 6. I was right, yeah. So then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And so if you were reading that in that translation you would probably think that that was talking about God creating dry land, right? He's creating an expanse in the midst of the waters. He's separating the waters from the waters. But that's actually the way that literally it describes God making the sky. Whereas in this translation, I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but it makes it much clearer that it's talking about God separating out the dome of the sky and making earth in the sky. So this is literally what the Greek says, but this is what the Greek means. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay, so basically, crash course on it. Also, just a funny one for people who love King James. One of the reasons that we update to modern languages is that the meaning of words changes. I'm going to read you guys a couple of King James. Oh, oh, I think this is old King James. Philippians 1.8. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you, all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Or Philemon 1.7. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Bowels doesn't mean the same thing now that it meant then. And it's okay that we've updated our language. The point is that we are supposed to understand it. So find a translation that you understand. Bowels obviously meant something different then. It meant like your heart or your guts or your soul or whatever. Anyway, point is, find a translation that you can understand. And that, I think, is... um. Important. All right, we're going to jump on to number three. So we're going to skip number two, jump on to point number three. Be, when we read the Bible, we need to be good at holding two different ideas in tension. The Bible does not contradict itself. The Bible is one unified message. But that does not mean that there are not a lot of things that we have to hold in tension when we read the Bible. And we have to be okay with that, to be good, honest readers of the Word of God. So I'm going to read out Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. It says, Don't answer the foolish arguments of a fool, or you will become as foolish as they are. Verse 5, 
Be sure to answer the foolish arguments of the fool or they will become wise in their own estimation. <gasps> Contradiction! Blasphemy! It literally is two verses that completely contradict each other. One says, don't answer a fool when he's being foolish. And the other one says, always answer or make sure you do answer a fool when he's being foolish. Do you think, maybe the writer of the Proverbs just didn't notice. Maybe he's just like, just a bad gaff or something. I think the point that this Proverbs writer is trying to make here is something we can understand. On the one hand, we need to hold the fact that we should not get drawn into foolish arguments that are going to just corrupt us and make us foolish. I'm sure we've been in places where we're arguing with somebody and after a while we're like, what are we even talking about? This is so stupid and a waste of time and we're just getting drawn down into this foolish argument. But on the other hand, the other thing we need to hold is that if somebody just says stupidity things all the time and nobody gently and kindly can say to them, hey, that's actually not wisdom, then they're going to think that they've got it all together and know everything. And these are the two things that we need to hold in tension. And this is just like a really good example of it because it's like two verses next to each other. But the Bible does this all the time. The Bible thinks that you have a bit of intelligence, which you do, that you can think critically, that you can hold things in tension. So when we read the Bible, we need to be careful that we're not trying to take what the word of, you know how like if you used to, as a kid get like a beach ball and you were in the pool and you were trying to keep the beach ball down and like trying to stand on it and keeps trying to come up and you're just trying to shove it down. Sometimes we do that with the word of God. We take what it's trying to say and we try to shove it into like fit a box better. No, this is my theology and I need to shove the word of God in to fit my theology. We need to be able to think critically and hold things in tension in the word of God. We need to be able to um, hold intention that we are saved by faith, but that God asks us to do good works. We need to hold intention that God has given us free will as people, but that God also is sovereign. We need to hold intention that we need to engage with our heart and our emotions, but we also need to not be ruled by them. There are tensions like this all over the Word of God. So when you're reading the Word of God, if you come across a tension, that's okay. A lot of reading the Bible, honestly, is learning to reckon with the tensions that the Bible holds, because the Bible's comfortable with that. We're the ones who aren't, and we need to learn to become comfortable with that. It doesn't mean it's a contradiction. It means we need to be able to hold that tension well. Um, all right, I'm going to go to number five. Look for recurring symbolism. There is a lot of recurring symbolism over the Bible, and where the same image comes up again and again, there's often something that God is um, communicating through that. So I read that passage out earlier about how when God created the sky, it was seen as him separating the waters from the waters. So basically within the Middle East, uh, the ancient Near Eastern understanding of the world, it was almost like we were in a, slow, a snow globe and all around the snow globe there was water, that there was like the sky and then like above the sky was water and then below us was water. That was sort of how they saw the world. And so when the flood comes, oh actually one other thing, I'm just going to read out the very, one of the very, very first verses of the Bible. Before the world is created. Oh, sorry. I pulled out my page marker. Okay. One of the very first verses of the Bible, Genesis 1 2, says, The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. 
and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So before the world was created, there was waters. It was om- so, so like these like oceans and waters, it's almost like a symbol of uncreation. Before creation, there was the waters. And then as God created, days two and three, the main thing he's doing is separating the waters. So he's making the sky and then he's making the land and he's separating the waters out to create the world um, out of that space. And so it sort of shows that um, separating the waters was a key part of what God was doing in creation. Now, I want to read to you Genesis 7, and I want to see if you can connect what the Bible is doing here and the way it talks about the floods. This is Genesis 7. We all know the story of Noah and the flood. Noah's there, and all the animals have come onto the ark, and the ark is built, and they're ready to go. Genesis 7, verse 11 says this. When Noah was 600 years old, on the 17th day of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky. The rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. So the symbol of what's actually happening here in the flood is it's almost like an uncreation. Whereas in creation, the waters were separated out It's almost like this symbol of the waters are coming crashing back in. It's like this uncreation. And so this symbol of chaos and churning water and the oceans is like a repeated symbol in the Bible of uncreation, almost of God's judgment or of God withdrawing his hand so that uncreation comes back into that space. And if you look for it, you'll find it there. And we were singing about the river of life. That is like a positive image of water. There are positive images of water. But where it's like the chaos and the churning sea, it's this symbol of uncreation and of chaos. And there's so many symbols like that, that when you notice them, they come up again and again and again in the word of God. All right. Um, I'll go to number nine. So don't expect, when we read the Bible, we need to not expect to understand everything. But we also need to know what are good resources to use to help us understand a little bit more. I often, I heard an analogy once, which I think is great, is that reading the Bible is like doing a crossword. When you do a crossword that's at a good difficulty level for you, you'll go through and a few of them will be like, yes, I got this, and you write in those letters, and some of them will be like, I have no idea. And so you'll skip the ones you don't know about and you'll focus on the ones you do know. But then later on, you go back to the one that you didn't know about and you're like, oh, I know it starts with the letter D now. And all of a sudden you know that and you're like, oh, yes, I've got it. It's dolphin or whatever it is. And it's sort of like the more you do it, the more the picture gets filled out and the easier it is to understand and to figure out what the crossword is doing and what, what the words are in the crossword. I think reading the Bible is a lot like that. There are some things we will read and we will understand straight away. And there's a lot of things we will read that are really difficult to understand. But I want to encourage you that the more you read the Word of God, the more you engage with it, the more it's like filling in words on the crossword that when you come back to something again, this, this time, maybe it will make sense in a way that it hasn't made sense before because there's some more letters filled in. You understand a little bit more about the meaning of the cross or you understand a little bit more about the symbolism of the waters, maybe. Maybe that'll be something that'll help fill a gap for you today. Um, Like next time you read, I mean. 
So be okay with that. Nobody understands the Bible altogether. There's not a single person on the earth that really understands all of the Bible right now. And that's okay. So be okay with that. Um, And also engage with good resources to help you along the way. The two that I can really recommend is the Bible Hub. So it's an online website where you can type in any verse and it'll give you like every single translation. You'll be able to look up the Greek or the Hebrew words for it. It's a really great resource. The other one that I can recommend is Bible Project. I can't recommend Bible Project more highly. They've got great animated videos going over like any book in the Bible, giving you an outline of it, tracing design patterns through the Bible. Their podcast is amazing. I cannot recommend it more highly. So be okay with not understanding, but also pursue understanding with good resources. And they're the two that I would really recommend, Bible Hub and Bible Project. Bible Project's on YouTube and it's podcast as well. This is the most read, the most translated, the most bought, the highest selling, the most stolen, the most banned, the most burned, the most dangerous, the most quoted, and the most influential book in history. And it's not even close. I'm about to wrap up, so if we could get um, keys up, that would be lovely. Um, So many people have died for this book and have died to put this book in our hands. And there's people in the world today that still are. There are places in the world where you can still die if you're caught carrying this book. So we know that we should have a passion for the Word of God. But if we're honest, I don't think we always do. Yeah? I think it's not always easy to read the Word of God. We don't always feel excited about it. And so number three, I want to talk about how we can grow in our hunger and our desire for the Word of God. When Dave and I were first married, I, um, we were married a couple months, and I walked into a bedroom with a stack of laundry to give to him, and he turns to me, this was like not a great early moment of our marriage, he turns to me and goes, oh, it's so annoying that the clean washing keeps showing up because I have to keep putting it away in the cupboard. And I threw the laundry at him and said, fine, you can do your own laundry. And, um, I mean, it was not really that big of a deal. It was just funny. But um, when I do laundry, I don't do it because I'm, like, so excited and so passionate and I cannot wait to do the laundry and feel so romantic about doing the laundry as an expression of my love for Dave. I do it out of a sense of responsibility, sometimes out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of habit. But that doesn't mean that my service to Dave in doing his laundry is not loving. I am trying to learn to jog. I'm over the honeymoon period of it, and it's miserable once again, but I'm determined to do it. And some days when I go out to jog, I really don't want to go. But if I go anyway, even if I don't want to, I still get benefit from it. We don't always need to feel like it to read the Word of God. If we do it anyway, it's still an expression of love for God, and it's still going to benefit us. And I think we need to hold that because there's going to be days like that. But it would be fantastic if we felt more passionate about the Word of God than we feel about folding laundry. So, and I think we should, (laughs) right? I found that my desire grew as my discipline grew. As I committed to it, I found that I loved it more and wanted to know it more. 
Every time I listen to a Bible Project podcast, I get all fired up about the Bible because I discover something new and exciting about it. I put myself in situations that make me excited about the Word of God. And also, I try to approach it with a bit of whimsy and a bit of curiosity. The Bible's exciting. There's like a mythical beast. I mean, maybe it's a, maybe it's a crocodile. I don't know. But called the Leviathan in the Bible. And it's like so cool. There's a story where King David has to bring 100 foreskins to a king as dowry for the wife he wants to marry. Like there's a story of a guy climbing down a toilet to escape punishment for murdering someone. There's so many bizarre and interesting things in the Bible. We need to not just sanitize it, right? And just try to fit it into our theological box. We need to approach it with a bit of whimsy and a bit of joy. So have a bit of an open mind when you read the Bible. What is this revealing to me about Jesus? What is this revealing to me about God? And I'm going to finish with this. The Holy Spirit helps us when we read the Word of God. He reveals the Word of God to us. He reveals Jesus to us as we read the Word, right? Holy Spirit can tell us about Jesus when we're watching a movie. He can tell us about Jesus when we're going for a walk. How much more can He reveal God to us when we're reading the Word of God? John 14, 26 says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. So we're going to end now with just a moment of waiting on the Holy Spirit and asking Him to cultivate in us more of a desire for the Word of God, more of a desire to read the Bible. So you guys want to join me in prayer? I'm just going to, we're just going to have a moment of asking the Holy Spirit for that. Holy Spirit, we want to be good disciples. We want to be formed in the image of Christ. Give us a hunger, Lord God, for the Word. Help us want to read it. Help us get revelation as we read it, Lord God. Give us a passion for the Word as we read. Help us have that hunger and that desire deep down in our souls. We thank you that we can freely read, freely access this book, Lord God. We are so grateful for your beautiful gift to us in Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, and in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, we're going to wrap the service up there. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. If you want to know more about faith or joining our church family, I encourage you to head up to the Next Steps Lounge after the service. There's people there who would love to chat with you. To everybody at home, it's been lovely having you with us this morning. Thank you for joining us. Why don't we all stand to our feet, make sure you say hello to someone on the way out, and we'll see you next week.